So the past couple of weeks, I've been struggling with a cold. And I've decided that there's almost nothing more miserable than a summer cold, you know? Wintertime, it's blustery, it's messed up. If you're coughing, you're stuffed up, it sort of matches the outside. But when you got the same kind of stuff and it's summertime and it's sunshine outside, you can go barefoot, it just doesn't seem quite right. So we're looking for a kind of a quick cure for the common cold. And, and so you can get back out there and kind of enjoy things. And all the normal suspects, right? There's, there's chicken noodle soup and plenty of fluids and rest. And I thought, well, maybe there's some other things we can look at. So we can look at the, some more uh, natural remedies. So apparently, uh, one of the things that suggests is that you would, uh, you would breathe in eucalyptus steam. That's a cure for the cold. Another one was that you would rub Vicks Vaporub on your feet. That would cure the cold. My, one odd one was take a slice of onion, put it in your socks, and that would somehow cure the cold. And then, then another one said, eat garlic. And, and I can't figure out, are all the cures for the cold so smelly? You know, <laughs> it's kind of an odd thing. There's really usually not much you can do with that. You just got to kind of wait it out, treat the symptoms, and three to 14 days, you'll feel a lot better. Colds are mostly just aggravating, but there's some other things that we experience in life that uh, have a more profound impact, and they last a lot longer than, than three to 14 days. So this morning, we begin our summer message series, Cures for the Common Soul. And over the next seven weeks, we're going to look at some experiences that trouble our souls, that are soul maladies. Really, a discontentment and loneliness, jealousy, and pride and distrust and conflict and confusion. And we're going to give you the cure right up front. The cure for all these and more is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You've seen this before. We've talked about the three circles of finding the gospel. All these things are expressions of brokenness. They're not the way God intended things to be, not the way God intended us to live. They don't lead us in the way that he means for us to do. But as we, we trust Christ and we trust his gospel and what he's promised, we find that it'll help us recover from that malady so we can live out God's design, how God really means for us to live. And, and so I know that's what you expect us to say. The answer is Jesus. <laughs> well, and that's true, but this really isn't just take two Jesus pills and call me. It'll all be better. We're not trying to Jesus juke you on this. We're not trying to, uh, to kind of be super spiritual, over-spiritualize it or, or trivialize things that, that may be genuinely troubling. The answer really is in Jesus Christ and his gospel. But what we want to do is we want to, want to go a little deeper and, and understand why that's the case and how we can apply it to our souls in order to recover. So today we're going to begin with discontentment. Now in the large catalog of spiritual sicknesses, uh, discontentment is, a, is kind of a sense of a, of a low-grade fever. Don't really realize you have maybe, but it's really dragging you down. It's an attitude to life the colors every part of our experience. So we're going to define discontent like this. The discontent is to have a restless craving for something one does not have. A restless craving, an active, ongoing, and never really lets up craving of something else, something different, something more, something better. Maybe a thing to possess, an event to experience, you know, the whole FOMO thing, fear of missing out. 
maybe a relationship to engage, an opportunity to have, a change to make, an emotion to feel, an accolade to receive, all those things. Now, this is, this is really different from, from ambition that you might have for your career or something like that. It's all other discussion. It's not the same thing as busyness. Ultimately, when we talk about discontentment, it is an entire life driven by a deep longing for something that is never satisfied. Now, for many of us, that is so normal that we don't even experience it as dysfunction in our soul anymore. But it's not healthy. And it doesn't line up with who God made us to be. And it doesn't enable us to experience the fullness of the abundant life that he intends for us to have as his people. So we need to deal with it honestly. We need to stop, let the word kind of do its work, like a scan. Look at our souls. And we're going to do that by looking at two men and their very different perspective on life. From the Old Testament, King Solomon, and from the New Testament, the Apostle Paul. They're both smart, both privileged, both have, have a unique role to play in God's plan, and each gave thought to the idea of contentment. Now, I want us to hear Paul's experience first, his perspective first. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, would you go ahead and turn there to Philippians chapter 4. I want you to hear this because I want you to kind of have an idea of, of where we are heading. Miss Natalie is going to come and read the scripture for us. If you would stand to honor the reading of God's word, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 4. Beginning in verse 11. Let's hear the Lord's word. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Yeah, thank you, Natalie. Appreciate that. Thank you. You may be seated. So you hear Paul's words there, and, and you hear one phrase a couple of times. He said, I have learned. And the word there for learned is, I have learned by repeated practice. Now, we know that if we want to have something new, a new habit in our life, it generally takes four to six weeks of practicing that before it becomes a new normal for us. So Paul says, I have learned contentment. That means Paul didn't start there. He started someplace else, maybe some less healthy ways to produce uh, heart contentment or to pursue it and experience it. So we're going to see that in Psalms experience. So hold your place there in Philippians 4 and go over to the Old Testament to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Psalms, kind of go to the middle and head back toward the New Testament. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and it's right there. Now Solomon was the son and successor to King David. He was the writer of Proverbs, Song of Solomon, and Ecclesiastes. Uh, these are part of what we call the wisdom books. And that's good because Solomon uh, was at that time known to be the, the wisest man who had ever lived, the wisest man on the planet. Now, the writer here is identified as, as one who is koaleth, or the word means the preacher. It could be the convener, could be the moderator of a discussion. So what's being discussed in Ecclesiastes? It is reflections on the realities of life on earth. The tone has been described as being brutally honest. Some of us might hear it and hear it as 
as really cynical about life. But let's hear what he says. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Now, the word there for vanity means empty or futile or like a mist. It means nothing. It's meaningless. Everything's meaningless. Now, why does he say that? What does man gain by all the toil in which he toils under the sun? A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down, and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south, goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea's not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. <laughs> Encouraged much? <laughs> He says, look, there's a problem here. Let me kind of sum up what he's saying. In the big picture, here's what he's saying. Discontent grows when I pursue the lie that all the world offers me will satisfy. Now, you can hear the frustration, can't you, in Solomon's voice. There's got to be more to life than this. He said, everything is it's empty, it's futile, it means nothing, it doesn't come together. I can't grasp it, get a hold on it. And if we drill down on the idea of discontent, if we get to the core, here's what we find we're saying, I want, I need, I crave more. I just need more than what I currently have. Nothing I'm experiencing or satisfying is, is satisfying the gnawing in me. I need more. Now, let's understand who be clear about who we're talking about here. This is not the beggar thief Aladdin on the streets with the monkey, right? Solomon is the sultan in the palace above everybody. He is fabulously truckloads of gold wealthy. He's deeply intelligent and creative. He has power and influence as sovereign over everything he sees. He is so successful and impressive that people come from all over the world to tell him how great he is and to give him even more gold. And so it was a fantastic kind of life, apparently, but he was miserable. So Solomon decided to take his resources and to produce contentment. Now, he's got no limits at all. So over to Ecclesiastes 2, beginning in verse 4, you hear what he did with his money. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, 
For my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. <laughs> he ended up in exactly the same place as he was before he started. Like all the world is leading him on, all the world letting him down. I've got it all, and still my heart wants more. Now, most of us here this morning are not in the same tax bracket as Solomon, the truckloads of gold wealthy kind of thing. We live in a different time and culture. But the culture we live in feeds the discontent of our souls. And all of us swim in these waters, and we're more shaped by them than we realize. Like the fish is surrounded by water when it swims, so are we in this culture, which consistently says to us, to be content, just get more stuff. More stuff you can see, more stuff you can own, more stuff you can possess. If I just had that house, those kitchen countertops, that kind of wardrobe, those tools, that car, that high-end mattress, that computer, that bank account, that kind of pension or benefit plan, then I'd be content. Now, now this kind of longing doesn't matter if you're comfortably wealthy or you're a person who has to look through the couch cushions to get changed to eat dinner at Wendy's. Makes no difference. You can still be consumed at heart by a domination for a desire for things. Remember what the scripture says in Timothy. It says it's the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now remember, this says the love of money. This is, not, this is not, I just want piles of money hanging around. It is what money can leverage me to buy. I love what that can do. He says that's a craving. Remember, discontent, a restless craving to just have something else, just have something more. Consider how many ads do you see or experience in a day? Logos that you see everywhere, pop-ups on your computer, commercials, billboards on the radio, Facebook sidebar, all those kind of things. Estimates range from several hundred to several thousand. All of them vying for your attention and your choices of your dollars. All of them desiring to make you crave something that is different than the life you have now. If I just have that thing, this part of my life would be so much better. And I need it. Constantly, the culture is saying, get more stuff and you'll be content. But it's also saying, find your bliss. Find those experiences that bring you pleasure and happiness and comfort. So it sounds like this. If only the people at my job would respect me for what I do. If only I could get that kind of position. If only my spouse would get their act together and treat me the way I deserve to be treated. If only I would have kids who would accomplish something that I could brag about on Instagram. <laughs> if only I could golf more times a week. If only I didn't have to be alone. If only I didn't have to take these pills. If only I could vacation in that spot. If only I could get some people to do with me something new so I don't do the stuff that's bored me already to do something. Then I would be content. <laughs> if only is the first line of a fantasy story 
of lives of discontent because what if only says is, I am at my core longing for some other life than the one I'm currently experiencing. If I need to find something else to make me really happy. Culture says, get more stuff. Find your bliss. bliss. And it says, be a better you or at least a different you than the one you are. One that's more talented or a different size or a different kind of physical appearance, married, single, maybe be quiet or be more confident, more organized or recognized or approved to be somebody, then if I could be, change me, then I could be content. Do you see how vicious this is? Many of these things are not bad in and of themselves, but the tendency is to make them ultimate as the source of our contentment. And our hearts are hammered with this every single day. Poet and songwriter Rich Mullins wrote a song. Here's how he put it. Everybody I know says they need just one thing. And what they really mean is they just need one thing more. Just one more thing and then I'll be satisfied. It can become our whole identity. So let me ask you, what is it for you? What is your one thing more? You say, where'd that come from in us? It's not complicated. Look back to Genesis 3. You have Adam and Eve, very first human beings created. They're in a, a paradise with literally everything. There are no threats at all. They're enjoying time with their creator. They have utter freedom to go anywhere, eat anything except for one deadly boundary that a good God had set about one particular tree and its fruit. The serpent, Satan, comes. And he says, hey, did, did God really say you all couldn't eat anything of what's out here? And Eve knew the answer. No, 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 we can eat anything we want to. It's just the one tree in the middle of the garden. We can't eat that or touch that or we'll die. And here's what Satan says. Oh, no. He says, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, says the woman, when she saw that the fruit was good, right? Let's go on to the next slide, please. Saw the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes. The tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took it with fruit and ate. She gave some to her husband who was with her, and he took it, and he Eight. Now, see, Satan lied about the tree. He lied about what God said. He lied about God's goodness, about God's wisdom. But underneath the explicit lie is another lie, a quieter lie that's summed up in one word <laughs> more. <laughs> Understand, they have all the paradise and God Himself, and their heart says, I just need more. I need the one thing I don't have. If only I could taste that fruit on that tree, then I'd really be content and happy. And if God won't give it, you just have to grab it. And right there is the lie that has kept human hearts dissatisfied and grasping for all of history. It's the same lie that I'm confident is festering around the edges of many souls in here this morning. If I can get everything in the world that I want or think or feel I need, then I'll feel satisfied and content. But that's a lie. You see, we're created, made at the very core, 
to live joyfully dependent on our God, to trust Him. And so at its deepest root, our discontentment is a doubting of the simple goodness, wisdom, and sufficiency of our God. Discontent says, you're holding out on me, God. I'm not sure you really know what's best for me. You're keeping from me things and experiences that I decided I need to have a real life, and I'll just keep chasing it until I grab it. And what we find out is that we have a lot like Solomon. We're just spinning on that hamster wheel, and it's the same view over and over and over again. It's all futile and empty. So let's hear now what Paul has to say. Back to Philippians 4. Paul's a very different perspective. Here's what, how Paul is on what he says. Contentment emerges when I pursue the truth that Christ alone is enough. Those verses we read from Philippians 4, Paul's dealing with the same world, with the same human heart tendencies. But here's what he had learned to be content. Here's how we can define that. Content to be satisfied with what one is or has, not wanting more or anything else. Do you hear the kind of the subtle contentment in that? Do you hear the, the restfulness in that? The lack of scrambling or competition in any way, the, the calmness to it. And he says, I learned this secret, and the secret has some layers to it. We've already seen the contentment does not come by one, one moment of sparkly angel dust that he pops on you and all of a sudden you feel content. Remember he said, I learned it by repeated practice. So this contentment is learned as we walk through and choose and, and deal with Stuff in our ordinary daily life at work or home and relationships that we have or choices that we have to do and things we have, we learn it that way. But here's the thing he reminds us, that contentment is not dependent on your circumstances. Notice the summaries he gives. says, whatever situation I'm in, in any and every circumstance. And then he gives these specific pairs of opposites. They're like on a, on a scale. He says, if I have little or I abound, if I'm hungry or I have plenty to eat, if I am in need or if I am in abundance, no matter where I am, I am content. I've learned that. He's not living with an if. He's not living with a prerequisite. And here's what I think is true. If we can begin to let go of our prerequisites and remove them, to take out our ifs, we're more likely to experience contentment of soul. If, if there's not something there in that way. So why not take your hands off? Why not try to stop trying to control and manage it, stop grasping for some version of happiness or contentment of soul, just grabbing onto it? Reminds me of the story of the little, the, the, the dad who heard his, his little boy was, was crying. He was in the kitchen, and he goes in, and his son's just crying and crying, and he's, and he's got his hand stuck in the cookie jar, and he's trying to pull it out, pull it out, and it just gets hurt, and he's, he's stuck in the middle of that, and, and the father just very calmly says, son, if, if, if you let go of the cookie, I bet your hand could slip right out. <laughs> I just have a seeking suspicion that it's a whole lot easier for Jesus to put contentment 
in empty hands than it is with grasping ones. Here, I'll give you what you need. It comes in any circumstance, no ifs, no qualifiers. Wherever I am, I'm content. How is that possible? Because he's discovered that contentment is a choice to trust that Jesus, your Savior and King, always has and always is enough. So the core verse here, Philippians 4, 13, the one we know so well, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Let's first of all notice what this verse is not. This may be more taken out of context than almost any other verse in the Bible. We put it on coffee cups and plaques and tattoos. <laughs> and we've taken to mean God will give me strength to do what I decided I want to do in this moment. But that's not what it's saying. This verse is not about losing weight. It's not about getting in shape. It's not about tackling a tough task at work. It's not about having strength to pass a test at school. It's not about making it through the eight-hour drive to your vacation destination. It's not about a, a parent saying, I'll have strength to not kill my child halfway through their teenage years. <laughs> it is not about making it through Leviticus in your Bible reading plan every year. And it is not about athletic exploits, Tim Tebow notwithstanding. It is not about that at all. In its context, this verse is about choosing to live with contentment of heart while living out the life and mission God designed you to live no matter the circumstances. So let's look and see what it means. Now we're going to walk through this together like we were meditating on it, just kind of turning it over in our mind. And we're just going to take it apart. And I want you to speak it with me as we walk through one word or, word or two at a time. So the word begins with what word? It begins with the word, let's say it. I, all right? So if you have trusted Christ, I, a son or daughter of the King who's been ferociously loved, I, a disciple of Jesus who's been called to deny myself and take up my cross and follow him and be a part of his life, I, filled with the Spirit, empowered to live his life, right? That's who I is. Let's keep reading, all right? Let's read together. Next phrase, I can do. I can do. This is not a passive thing, right? It's not waiting for God to dump some contentment on me, but there's an active trusting, right? Let's read this next part out. Let's read together out loud. Ready? I can do all things, all things, even when the circumstances I'm facing are hard, when the demands are big, when the risk is great, when I don't know the outcome, where it's going, when I feel overwhelmed or disappointed or terrified or my heart is breaking, all things necessary in that moment to live the life God's called me to, all things necessary to be on mission the way he's called me to. Read the next phrase. Read together. Together, ready? I can do all things. What's the next phrase? Through Christ, through Christ. He's the source, he's the agent, he's the provider. So I trust who he is. Oh, he's my, he's my savior. Do you know what he saved you from? Do you know why he died on the cross? Jesus died on the cross for all the moments when you and I pluck the fruit. He said, don't pluck. He died on the cross, taking all those moments, all the punishment for that. That's why he had to die in the first place. And we said, oh, I want more than what you said I could have. And we took it for ourselves, and that was wrong. And there's punishment for that. So he died to forgive us for that. And then he rose again. And when he rose again, he was put in a, in a place of, of power and authority. And Ephesians describes it this way. 
It says that he's seated far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And God put all things under Christ's feet and gave him his head over all things, for all things for the church, the one who fills all things in every way. The one we call Savior and Lord reigns as king. He's in charge of the universe. He's far above every other thing, which means he's in charge. He moves things around. He's sovereignly in control. He sees the end from the beginning. He knows every detail of the tomorrows of your story. He knows every thread of your life and how every thread of your life weaves together with every thread of ever the life that you encounter, every other experience that you have, every other place that you will go. He's putting your life together, and it says that he, he feels he's enough. He has enough. Our Savior has no lack. There's no possibility of running out. Our reigning king has more riches than Solomon ever dreamed of having. He is the rich king. He's, that's who he is. So we trust who he is, but we trust not only that, we trust what he promises. Second Peter chapter 1 says this. It says, his divine power has given us everything required, everything we need for life and godliness. Now, everything is a very technical Greek from the Aramaic term that means, well, it means everything. <laughs> everything. There's nothing left out of this. Everything for life he intended when he made you, when you were fearfully and wonderfully made and drew your first breath. He'll provide what you need. Not Your story's unique. He's not, not the story you thought you would have or what somebody else is like. But your story, but not only that, he's provided what's perfectly necessary for you to live his mission, what your part to play in his mission in the world. So we don't have to grasp and scramble. Because here's the truth. If, if we don't have it right now, we don't need it right now to live the life and the mission he's called us to. So you know what that means? It's not up to you. You know what that means? It means, brothers and sisters, you can just breathe. Just breathe. Your king has it. He says, I'll give you whatever you need. Now let's finish our verse. Let's read this together. Ready? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Makes it real personal, doesn't it? In my weakness, you can say the same thing, in my temptations, in my dysfunctions, as I swim through a world that whispers, hey, get more stuff. No, because Jesus has everything. I don't have to. That means I can give away more stuff to break the spell of stuff so I trust him that he'll give everything I need and I can live light and free just trusting my Father. That sounds an awful lot like Eden to me. What he meant for us from the very beginning. As I swim through the world and I'm weak in a world that says, chase your own bliss and arrange circumstances for your happiness. Oh, no, no. I have a Savior who's promised something better than happiness. Here's what he says in John 15. Abide in me. Abide in my love. I said this so my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. If 
You'll live it and draw from his life. If you'll order your life around who he is and let that be the defining thing, if that's true, then you get his joy, heaven-sized joy. You get all of this for you, for who he's made you to be. Have you ever considered what it'd be like to laugh with Jesus? <laughs> Laughter of the redeemed with their Savior is unlike any other joy, and it makes all earthly happinesses pale in comparison to know he's provided for me. I'm swimming in a world that says, oh, be a more and better you. Listen, if you're in Christ, he's made you new, and if he's made you new, he's made you complete, and you're whole. There's nothing lacking. You don't need anything more which means I can turn the spotlight around just like John the Baptist and say, oh no, he must, he must increase. But I must decrease because I understand the story was never meant to be about us anyway. And just like Jesus said, whoever loses life for my sake in the gospels will find it. You know what secret Paul learned? Here's what he learned. <laughs> Put it all together. Jesus is better and Jesus is enough. He's better than anything the world tells you you gotta have, better than any if or any more, and he's enough. Always has been, always will be. So what's the scan show? Do you have a Solomon heart of restless, craving, discontent? Or a Paul heart, settled, trusting contentment? As we pray in a moment, it might do well for you to come and kneel here and pray. And in your praying, repent of, of following or listening a little too much to the world's lie that you need more to be content. And maybe at the same time you're coming, you're coming and, and pleading and saying, Lord, I want the truth of Christ enough to capture my heart and settle me and give me a settled contentedness and peace and rest in my soul that'll shape everything else about me. Maybe for the first time, you need to trust Christ to give you his life forever. Because if he can forgive your sin and settle your eternal destiny, he can make you content right now as well. I love what the psalmist said. God, there's nothing on earth I desire but you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And I think he sent me here to tell you this morning that when your heavenly father ladles out his portions, it's always enough. It's always enough. Jesus is more. Jesus is better. Jesus is enough. And it really is true that all we want and all we need is found in him only. Let's stand together and pray. So, Father, we've been before your word in these moments, and we pray that we would be honest about what you're stirring in us right now. Father, we need to 
do business with you. We need to pray. And so I pray, Lord, as we come and as we pray that we be honest about what we've listened to, the lies, and that we would lean hard into the truth and be satisfied again with the fullness of you are. And Lord, let us pray it for ourselves. And Lord, there are leaders and others who are gonna come and they're praying for revival today as we, as we pray for you to remind us of how holy you are, that you're other than this world and what you provide is other than this world. And so Lord, would you remind us, not only for us individually, but for us as a family, that Jesus is better and Jesus is enough. So help us to respond as we worship you together in these moments. You come together and pray as we worship you in this moment.